Thanks, Tofe. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for Jesus. Uh, we're thankful for the portrait of Jesus that we get in the Gospels uh, four times over that you uh, decided in your sovereign will and that the ancient church decided to not uh, smush the Gospels together, but to give us four presentations of the Gospel so that we have a really full picture of the character and personality and presence of Jesus. Father, I pray that through the power of your spirit that we would be able to meet Jesus um, and that we would hear not only the content of what he says, but we would hear the tone, we would hear the heart, um, the affection, the intensity that he brings, um, and that we would receive his lordship. We would receive his leading in our lives. Um, I pray that you would help me as I speak. Father, guard me from error, guard me from um, uh, being sidetracked. Father, I pray that people would hear what the Lord wants them to hear this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Welcome. My name is Dave Ainsworth. I'm one of the pastors here. Excited to be preaching and continuing through this series on the teachings of and parables of Jesus. Um, the human, inabil- human ability to understand our environment is remarkable. Uh, Jesus points that out. Um, and, and even though people are not omniscient, uh, we don't know everything. We do make a lot of mistakes and are prone to error. It's still quite remarkable what human beings can do. Uh, I read an article recently on the human sense of smell. Uh, In normal times, it's really hard for scientists to get research money for the study of smell. But because one of the key symptoms of COVID is the loss of smell, they have all these uh, patients and clients and uh, subjects to work with. And so there's been a lot of writing about smell. And if you stop and think about it, smell is really wild. And so the journalists uh, in the article that I wrote are that... I did not write it, but the journalist wrote it, and he writes, smell is a startling superpower. Uh, You can walk through someone's front door and instantly know that she recently made popcorn. Uh, Drive down the street and somehow sense that the neighbors are barbecuing. Intuit, just as a side effect of breathing a bit of air, that this sweater has been worn, but that one hasn't. Uh, that it's going to start raining soon, and that the grass was trimmed a few hours back. If you weren't used to it, it would seem like witchcraft. Uh, our senses are amazing, and on top of our five primary senses, we have the exceptional ability to imagine. Uh, no other animal, as far as we know, has the ability to imagine, to not just use their senses to discover what is, but to use their imagination to discover what might be, what could be, what can't be. Uh, Yuval Harari, in his book Sapiens uh, from a few years back, he said that imagination, the ability to conceive of things that can't be seen, is what undergirds all human society. And so he uses examples of like nation states, like what is California? It's an idea. Um, what is money? It's not paper, it's something, right? Our religious ability depends on our imagination that we can imagine a spiritual world that we cannot see, that our senses cannot access. The problem is that unlike our five senses, which just work, they just uh, see, smell, feel, it just happens. Imagination is under our control. 
Um, I don't have control over my senses. If my kid farts in the car, I can't say to myself, I don't wanna smell that. I'm gonna turn off my smell. I choose to smell flowers instead. I'm declaring my smell, declaring my truth. That's not a fart. Uh, I can't do that. That is impossible for me. Um, imagination, on the other hand, is completely under our control. Uh, we can use it or not. Uh, and when we use it, we can use it to discover truth or to obscure it, which is why in Luke 12, Jesus calls the crowds hypocrites for not discerning the times. Luke 12, 54, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. When you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And so it's not that the crowd lacks the capacity to understand the times. In calling them hypocrites, Jesus is pointing out the real issue. They don't want to understand. Uh, they don't want to see. As Paul says in Romans, they are suppressing the truth, pushing it down. And we've all known people who just refuse to see the writing on the wall. And it's hard to know when it's someone you love, do they not see? Um, are they refusing to see? And with humanity, it's always a mix um, of both. It's usually a mix of both. They can't see in part because they don't want to see. A spiritual blindness in particular is a culpable inability. Um, it's an inability that we're responsible for. And we know it's culpable because we know ourselves. Um, I can remember times, I'm sure you can too, when we, uh, you and I were culpably ignorant. Uh, there are things that I don't want to see. I'd rather read the weather of my life, the near-term circumstances, than interpret the history of my life, which is a lot more painful, that's a lot more consequential. It might invite change that is painful and costly. And so I either turn off my imagination, I distract it with other things, or if necessary, I use it to obscure reality, to imagine things that I don't want, um, that I'd rather see. And so it's no wonder that Jesus often speaks in parables, right? He is trying to jumpstart our imaginations. If only we will have ears to hear. In the context of Luke 12 and 13, Jesus is speaking specifically about the failed project of first century Judaism. Uh, the old covenant is passing away and Jerusalem is not going to last much longer. It's falling apart as God had long foretold and even planned for. And according to Jesus, Jerusalem's failure should be obvious to everyone. Uh, the Jewish people had been occupied by colonizers for centuries. Their religious devotion had devolved into just a moral caste system entirely unrelated to the love of God. The poor and sick are oppressed. All reformist movements have failed. The society is irreparably broken. And so when Jesus says a moment earlier in 1251, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Uh, he's saying, I'm not here to restore Jerusalem to its former glory. Uh, that's not what my ministry is about. I'm here to move it forward to a greater glory. There's just no way to keep this thing alive anymore. The only solution for God's people is to die and be born again, to start over. And as evidence of that greater glory and new life, Jesus offers his ministry and miracles. That's part of the history Jesus is telling them to interpret, to listen to his teaching, to watch his healings. 
Um, No one teaches like Jesus, right? No one heals like Jesus. No one raises the dead at all. No one embraces the outcast like Jesus said. This is the future the prophets spoke of. And the thing is, if sin had had not so messed up our imaginations, if we only use them for truth, we would all see what Jesus saw and hear what Jesus spoke, and we would do what he says to do, which is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The problem is most people in Jesus' day were heavily invested in the old covenant continuing as is. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, even the separatists were committed to their identity as separatists. Um, I learned Uh, a while ago, that there is still, in the Middle East, a sect devoted to John the Baptist. That's about 60 to 70,000 people spread around the Middle East, and they still follow John the Baptist and are looking for a Messiah. Isn't that wild that they still are there 2,000 years later? These and others were and are heavily invested in the way this world works. And so with Jesus, only the poorest, sickest, Most marginalized people were eager for change. Only they responded to Jesus' invitation, which is why Jesus says, I've not come to call the healthy, but the sick, the sinner. Jesus knows that they're the only people who will listen, who are ready to listen. Still, though, in our passage today, you get the sense that Jesus is frustrated, that people are ignoring his call to repentance. Shouldn't these people, who are otherwise so smart and capable and gifted, who can read the weather perfectly, who have fully operational uh, senses, a fully operational imagination, shouldn't they know they're on a sinking ship? But instead of acknowledging that the ship is sinking, they're obsessed with either maintaining their privileged position on that sinking ship or jockeying for a better position. Uh, In addiction recovery circles, this is sometimes called switching seats on the Titanic. Uh, swapping one coping mechanism for another, one ignorance for another. And Jesus is just flabbergasted. Uh, He's been with people for a long time. He's been teaching them and, and people aren't responding. We know a little something about living and what feels like a civilization on its way out. Uh, the events of the last few years have been wild Um, And not just politically and economically and culturally, but existentially. Um, It feels like the foundations are crumbling of capitalism and modern liberalism, American democracy, individualism, white evangelicalism. It all feels like it's coming apart. And so everyone is sort of in this phase of deconstruction for a reason, because it's broken. And Jesus is calling us to read the times. You're on a sinking ship. And suffering people, they know this already. They don't need much persuading, right? People confined to the lower depths of life where the water is already flooding in, they're ready for a new ship, right? Sign me up. They want to go. But people on the upper decks, the well-born, the content, the satisfied, the healthy, are able to ignore the cracks longer than most. But all of us eventually experience those cracks as we age, as we get older. And we should read the times. Jesus is calling us to read the times and respond accordingly. Pay attention to what's going on around you. Don't just jockey for better seats on the Titanic. 
Wouldn't it be smarter to negotiate a seat on a different ship while there's still time, one that can withstand the storm to come? And that's Jesus' encouragement in Matthew 12, 57, um, telling a kind of parable. He says, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. And so Jesus tells a parable where we're the main characters. And he imagines us on the way to a divine courthouse, an unmovable and unchangeable rock of justice. Uh, this is the testimony of all of scripture. Psalm 96, 13, God is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. And then Matthew 16, 25 and 27. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? That was the message of the parable from last week when we met outside. What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So Jesus, with a sense of urgency, is saying judgment is coming. And Jesus implies that no matter who you are, the case is stacked against you, right? Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Wouldn't it be smart to make things right before you get there? Settle with him on the way, Jesus says. That's Jesus' central message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now's your chance. People often don't attend to Jesus' central message. Um, like everyone uh, who is alive, they are on their way to death. They are marching forward, but instead of settling their account, they shoot the breeze with Jesus, right? They ask for advice. They enjoy his miracles. They eat his food. Uh, later in Luke 13, he'll tell a parable uh, about people who are ultimately excluded from the kingdom of God because they didn't respond in time. So when someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Ignoring the question, he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. So listen to their pleas. They say, surely we belong. We ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. And Jesus' reply is in essence, yeah, but my time didn't change you. You never really got to know me and I never really got to know you. You didn't actually come into my house. And that was the point of all the teaching and the food and the drink. 
to show you that I am good and safe and wise and gracious and worthy of being your God and King, to show you that you could set aside your mask, you could stop pretending. I knew the whole time, the whole time that you are a member of an enemy kingdom, that you are a traitor in cahoots with Satan. But I still welcomed you in hopes that you would shed your old allegiance and come with me into my house. But you were never real with me. You never settled along the way. You refused to come through the narrow door. And now the door is closed. If you're new to citizens, and some of you are, I want to acknowledge that today's teaching includes a lot more talk of death and judgment than most sermons you hear at our church. This is not a typical sermon, uh, but we teach books expositionally, so we've been working through the book of Luke, and so that means whatever comes up, we preach it. And specifically when I preach Jesus and probably any part of scripture, I'm always sensitive. I, I want to try and match my tone to the tone of Jesus. And the tone of Jesus here in Luke 12 and 13 is intense. And that makes sense. In the first third of Luke, much of Jesus' teaching and miracles were aimed at showing the crowds who he was and what his coming kingdom was to be like. And so that made it a generally positive and hopeful and attractive message. But in the second third of Luke, Jesus' teaching becomes more intense And that makes sense because Jesus is now on his way to Jerusalem to purchase that coming kingdom, that hopeful kingdom, joyful, peaceful, full of shalom, but to purchase it with his own rejection and death. And that is top of mind for him. Just a few verses before today's text, he refers to his death in Luke 12, 50, and he's talking about himself and he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus is personally distressed, aware of where he's going and why he's going there. And so naturally, Jesus' teaching becomes more distressed, more dark, and more urgent. He knows, I only have a little more time to teach, and these listeners only have a little more time to listen. Even so, Luke 13 is a great snapshot of the full breadth of Jesus' teaching. And so in talking more about judgment and hell, Jesus doesn't stop talking about grace. He hasn't given that up, right? Jesus freely moves between topics that we often consider incompatible. Um, And so in this one chapter, he does speak about death and Satan and hell, sin and judgment, all while simultaneously emphasizing God's grace and his patience and his commitment to redemption. He talks both about people being excluded from God's kingdom for failing to repent. And in the very next breath, he talks about many, many more people coming from the east and the west and the north and the south to join God at his banquet. And so it's instructive to see how Jesus moves easily between judgment and grace, between patience and urgency, between death and hope. In Jesus, all of these things exist side by side. 
And so I encourage you this week, as we're really moving very fast trying to close out Luke, I encourage you this week to sit down with Luke 13 and pay attention to the fullness that is Jesus. Ask the Spirit to help you trust this Jesus and not just a caricature. Uh, Some of us prefer the healing Jesus. Some of us prefer the teaching Jesus. Some of us actually prefer Jesus the judge. We feel like we're most motivated when we're scared. And so we want want the scary Jesus. Um, Others recoil at Jesus the judge and they only want Jesus the comforter. And the reality is that Jesus is all of these. And so ask yourself, am I preferring a certain kind of Jesus? Or am I letting Jesus be the full divine human person that he is? And the reality is in Luke 12 and 13, we mostly have Jesus, the hellfire preacher. He's the guy downtown with a sandwich board, warning people of God's wrath, calling people to repent. I would honestly be embarrassed by this Jesus. But this is him. This is the Jesus who loves me and who has saved me. This is not the only side of Jesus, but it is one. And so how can we accept the gentle Jesus, the wise Jesus, the welcoming Jesus, but not also accept the fierce one? Are they not the same person? Uh, Speaking specifically about the judgment of God and the punishment of hell, I want to be honest and direct. We don't talk about this very much, but Citizen's Statement of Faith reads clearly. It says that we believe in the personal, glorious, and bodily return of our Lord Jesus Christ with his holy angels when he will exercise his role as final judge and his kingdom will be consummated. We believe in the bodily resurrection of both the just and the unjust, the unjust to judgment and eternal conscious punishment in hell as our Lord himself taught and the just to eternal blessedness in the presence of him who sits on the throne and of the lamb in the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness. This is a standard Christian confession. And so believing that, we too want to preach with urgency the gospel of Christ, which offers a way for the unjust, for me and you who are unjust, to be graciously counted just through the justifying work of Jesus on the cross. Death is truly humanity's greatest enemy. And it can only be survived through persevering faith in Christ. According to Jesus, it's die now to self or die later to God. For whoever will lose his life, would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And that's in many ways what Lent is about. It's a decision in faith to lose my life so that I might save it. Meditating on sin's relationship to death Uh, In my Lent devotional for this week, uh, which has been really good by Paul Tripp, but he has an extended uh, quote that I want to read. And he says, in some ways, the quest of every fallen human being is to find the easy way out. This is one of the reasons it is helpful to mark out a period of time each year to meditate on the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is a powerful interruption to our easy way out thinking. It catches us up short. It confronts our vain wishes. The horrible suffering and death of the perfect Messiah Jesus on a criminal's cross outside of the city on a hill of death tells us in no uncertain terms that when it comes to humanity's deepest and inescapable problem, there is no easy way out. None. 
The cross calls us to quit hoping in, to stop searching for, and to give up on our belief in our ability to manufacture or stumble upon a cure. Sin brought death into the world. Sin separated us from our creator. Sin turned us all into rebels and fools. Sin's pathway is destruction and its endpoint is death. There are no escape routes. We can't buy our way out. We can't earn a better destiny. There is nothing we can do. We are being propelled blindly down a roadway of death. And we may smile and celebrate and accumulate, but left to ourselves, we have no hope. Apart from some miraculous intervention, we are doomed. There is and never has been an easy way out of this terminal disease, the one that infects us all, sin. And the cross screams to us, stop looking elsewhere. This is the only way. Uh, Maybe you don't share our exact view of the final judgment and the afterlife, and that is fine. Um, But if you're a Christian, you really do have to believe in sin and death and judgment and hell in some capacity because Jesus speaks simply too much of it um, to dismiss it entirely. Um, All Christians, not just the conservative ones, believe in a final judgment and the existence of hell. Um, I did uh, a bit of extra reading over the past year on hell because I had received a number of questions and uh, recommendations and various things. And um, it's a doctrine that's regularly called into question. And so I just hadn't revisited it yet in a couple years and so wanted to do so. And I'd be happy to talk through that with any of you. Uh, But one of the things that struck me in reading a variety of people with different views, legitimate and fair views of the afterlife, is that no Christian I read uh, questioned the existence of hell. Um, Even if one didn't believe in the traditional view of an eternal punishment, they still believed that hell was real and that it was awful. And so even if you believed in the ultimate annihilation of the unrepentant, where sinners will cease to exist at the end of their punishment after they've paid for sins, or if you believe in the ultimate salvation of the repentant, that all people will ultimately be restored to God, um, eventually saved. No matter the view, everyone still believed that hell was real and awful, and that those who die outside of Christ will spend at least some time there. Uh, Perhaps a long, long time, because as Jesus says in Luke 13, people will be in prison until they have paid the last penny. And if that's true, even for the universalist, the urgency of Jesus still stands. Repent today, now, while you still can. You don't want to spend any time after death apart from God. And that's the backdrop of Jesus' teaching in Luke 13. That's the intensity there. Uh, He is approaching his own death, and he is also very aware of the impending death of all his listeners. And he's pleading with people to turn from their sins and accept the only way of salvation. Turn your imagination on. That's why Jesus employs such wild imagery for the afterlife employs so many parables that end with a master coming and finding some people ready and some people not ready. Man, that is an ongoing idea in the teaching of Jesus. And he does that so many times. It's meant to shock us. 
whatever the afterlife is in reality and employing such metaphors, Jesus is attempting to hijack our imagination, to wrestle the steering wheel away from us so that we don't fly ourselves on autopilot into the rock of death. What does it mean to settle on the way? It means simply to repent, to renounce our former commitment to sin, to commit ourselves to Jesus and ask for the mercy of God. Uh, Settling on the way doesn't mean defending ourselves, right? It's not a way that we justify our sins and claim that we're not actually as bad as the Bible says we are. We don't compare ourselves to other, which Jesus is about to point out. It doesn't mean finding a compromise, uh, asking for a redo. Christianity is not about a second chance, um, promising to do better, just give me another chance. No, to settle along the way means to plead for mercy, full stop. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the great thing is that the gospel teaches us that it's that mercy, showing mercy is central to God's character, more central than judgment. Lamentations 3.33 says that God does not afflict from his heart. And this means that when punishing sin, he will do it for the sake of justice, but it is not his deepest desire. It is not done in such a way that can be described as from his heart. By contrast, extending grace, showing mercy is his highest delight. Uh, in Jeremiah 32:41, God is speaking of Israel. They are currently idolatrous, but he's looking forward to the future when they will turn back to him. And he says, I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. This is the thing I want to do. I'm excited to do. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin explains, in acts of justice, there is a satisfaction to an attribute in that he meets and is even with sinners. Yet there is a kind of violence done to himself in it. The scripture so expresses it. There is something in it that is contrary to him. I desire not the death of a sinner. That is, I delight not simply in it for pleasure's sake. When he exercises acts of justice, it is for a higher end. It is not simply for the thing itself. There is always something in his heart against it. But when he comes to show mercy, to manifest that it is his nature and disposition, it is said that he does it with his whole heart. There is nothing at all in him that is against it. The act itself pleases him for itself. There is no reluctance in him. And so... When we confess our sins to the Lord, he delights to show you mercy. He is excited to show you mercy. He does it from his heart. This is why he sends Jesus, because God wants to save. He's not neutral about it. And I I think we read this parable about walking to a courthouse with our accuser and settling along the way, and we picture ourselves pleading with God, right? We imagine ourselves groveling, holding God's legs, pleading with him to not go to the the courthouse. But based on the rest of scripture, 
I wonder if we've got it backwards, right? I wonder if instead we should picture the accuser pleading with us and ourselves tight-lipped with an upturned nose and him saying, stop being so stubborn, right? Stop pleading not guilty. I want to settle with you. I want to show you mercy. I sent my son to die in your place. He's already paid your way. Why do you insist on being judged by your own merit? Why do you insist on claiming your own righteousness? There is a free righteousness available to you right here. Settle with me now. When you find yourself walking with God, your accuser on the way to death, know that he is eager to settle with you. He is ready. All you have to do is ask. As often happens when preachers talk about judgment and wrath, Jesus' listeners interject with a troubling news story, uh, raise the problem of evil. Luke 13, 1, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And apparently Pilate, the local Roman Roman governor who was a wicked governor, uh, he would kill Jesus in just a few weeks. He had killed some Jewish people while they were offering sacrifices in the temple. So in the act of offering sacrifices, he came in and killed them and desecrated the temple. And in many ways, they are raising the problem of evil, right? Why do bad things happen to good people while bad people continue to prosper? And the Bible has never shied away from this question. Uh, The book of Job is a very, very long book devoted to the suffering of good people. The Psalms and the Proverbs wrestle with the success of bad people. Uh, Jesus doesn't get into it, though, and that should be instructive to us. Um, Apparently, there is a time for such wrestling. The Bible makes significant space for it, but Jesus pushes it aside and he puts the focus back on us. He won't let these people be distracted. And so he says, he answers, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans? Do you think they deserved what happened to them because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He even raises the ante by offering another example that has nothing to do with a wicked ruler that is just like an accident, um, a terrible, tragic accident. He says, he talks about 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And this is a good word for us It reminds us that Jesus is allowed to ignore our questions, to sidestep them, to push them off till later. And he's even good to do that too when the ship is sinking, right? Reading the times doesn't require a satisfying answer to the problem of evil. Um, I don't really know that we're capable of a satisfying answer. Honestly, not Christians, not atheists, not anyone. Uh, Evil and sin and death is just inexplicably awful. There are satisfactory answers, but no satisfying answers. And so don't let the philosophy of it all distract you from your clear need. That's what Jesus is emphasizing as he drives past these questions. Strive to enter the narrow door. Don't be left outside the house. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This is a heavy word from Jesus, and it is because Jesus is heavy-hearted. 
he is distressed. But don't miss the voice of Jesus in these hard truths. Don't miss the love of Christ. Um, in talking about Jesus teaching on hell, Herman Bavink, um, right reminds us no one can deny Christ's depth of feeling and compassion, that he was the meekest and most humble of human beings. It is the greatest love that warns of the most severe punishment. And so the same Jesus who draws us in the beginning of Luke, who reminds us and teaches us who he is, who heals people, who invites us into a kingdom of shalom. That same Jesus warns us now, both messages are spoken in love. And perhaps to make sure we know that this is still the same Jesus we're talking to, there's this beautiful miracle story sandwiched between all these parables on God's final judgment. And so I wanna close with it. In Luke 13, 10 to 13, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. This is a beautiful story. It's a woman who for 18 years could not stand up straight. Try to imagine that physical experience, not standing up straight, not being able to stretch and reach out for 18 years so that if I fall over tomorrow and this happens to me, I'm doubled over until the year 2039 when I am 56 years old. This woman is sick and broken, literally turned in on herself. And so, What led to her healing? Uh, Well, of course, Jesus did. Uh, Jesus healed her. He saw her. He called her over. He touched her, and she was healed. But another thing led to her healing, too, and that was her commitment to put herself in the place where Jesus would be. She put herself, she was worshiping in the synagogue. Even after 18 years of debilitating disability, she was still worshiping. She put herself in the place where Jesus was. She let herself be seen by Jesus, even if it meant exposing herself to be seen by others. This is the Jesus who brings this heavy word. It is a Jesus who heals and desires to heal. And so let's bring all these metaphors together, the fullness of Jesus' teaching. Are you putting yourself in the way of Jesus? Are you letting yourself be seen by him? Are you responding to his warnings? Will you let him awaken your imagination? Are you responding to his offers of mercy? Are you settling with God through him along the way? Are you going through the narrow door? It's the only way. Luke 13 closes with Jesus pleading, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. May it be said of us that we were willing. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are again thankful for Jesus. And we're thankful for this closing word that when he tells parables of judgment, 
They come from a deep love for people. That there is a maternal instinct, a deep desire as a mother hen gathers over her brood. He wants to gather people under his wings. He wants to bring them in union with him because only in union with him can we survive death and be resurrected on the other side. But in Jerusalem's case, they weren't willing. They wouldn't turn their imaginations on. They wouldn't listen. Father, I pray that you would give us the grace of faith, that you would open our eyes and ears to know to read the times, and to know that you are the only way of salvation. Father, for those of us who have responded in Lent, help us to respond again, uh, to again commit ourselves to you. Help us to talk with our neighbors, to talk with our um, coworkers, our family, our friends, uh, to, like Jesus, spend time uh, teaching about the kingdom of God, Uh, convincing people of the identity of Jesus, that he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, that his kingdom is good and great and glorious. But at the same time, Father, will we turn? Um, Will we turn our hearts as we talk about Lent, as we talk about meditating on death and call people to repentance and faith? Father, we love you. We're thankful for grace. We're thankful that you are quick to show us mercy, that it is your deepest, deepest desire to show us grace. Uh, Thank you so much. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.